Hello, welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today's date is May 20th, 2021. Today's episode is a recording from a recent webinar we hosted on the 21st century space race. This webinar featured Captain Wendy Lawrence, the United States Naval Aviator and NASA astronaut, Lieutenant General David Debtula of the United States Air Force, Peter Chur, our macro strategist, and Rachel Washburn, who moderates the webinar for a deep introduction to our guests. Here's Rachel. Welcome and thank you for joining Academy Security's latest geopolitical webinar. Today we are so excited to discuss and provide context for the re-emphasis on space travel, technology, and cooperation. Whether it be the creation of the Space Force, international relations in space during an era of great power competition, or commercial space ventures, there is no shortage of consideration in today's space race. Today's webinar is a great example of how Academy strives to constantly add value beyond our designation as a minority and veteran-owned firm. At the intersection of authenticity and capability for our team is our geopolitical intelligence group, an advisory board comprised of 14 retired admirals and generals. Joining us on today's call is General David Deptula, the Air Force's first Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, and Captain Wendy Lawrence, a former NASA, NASA astronaut who has logged over 1,200 hours in space as a mission specialist and was a veteran of four space flights. An important element of our geopolitical offering is the valuable market overlay provided by Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. With over 25 years of industry experience, Peter contextualizes the input from our geopolitical intelligence group, helping investors and corporations alike understand the implications of national security and policy challenges. If at any point you have a question for our team, please type them into the Q&A portion at the bottom of the screen. We look forward to answering your questions and making this an interactive conversation. Without further delay, General Deptula, I'd like to pose the first question to you. While this uh, may be a hard question to answer in the time we have today, uh, can you discuss why there was a need to create a Space Force? What are the current challenges we face uh, to integrate this new branch of the military into the DOD? Um, well, thank you, uh, Rachel, and uh, greetings, everyone who uh, is tuned in here. I'll try to give you a succinct an answer and address some of these topics um, as I can. Um, I'll start off with the fact that the birthday of the U.S. Space Force, uh, the 20th of December 2019, is really a date that'll go down in history as a start of a new era in uh, American military power. Um, with Russia, China, and others advancing means to conduct warfare in space, the Space Force essentially was put together and will prove vital for organizing, training, and equipping um, US uh, forces to defend uh, the US space enterprise. I don't think I have to overemphasize too much that Space is absolutely vital uh, to modern American life, whether it's viewed from an economic, an information or national security uh, vantage point. And what I'd tell you and our audience is that uh, now that the Space Force is a reality, it's really crucial to ensure that that new service um, is aligned for success. Uh, and that really demands an honest assessment of its needs and challenges um, with full recognition that establishing this new service 
uh, was just sort of the first step of many that need, need to be taken. And you might be asking, well, what are you talking about? It's only the first step. Well, I tell you that the Space Force right now is underfunded, it's undermanned, and it's without the authorities necessary to consolidate the upwards of 60 other additional organizations in the US government uh, that have a hand in space. Um, so let me just touch, if I may, um, uh, on each of these challenges. And I think that'll give you a better sense of what I'm talking about. I mean, the first and the greatest challenge involves confronting the reality of surging threats to both our civil and military space architectures. And we can only do that if the men and women of the new Space Force are sufficiently resourced to fulfill their missions. Uh, the current chief of space operations, uh, the CEO, if you will, of the Space Force, uh, General Raymond has said that uh, threats are going to be the pacing element of Space Force capabilities. Uh, and those threats have been growing. And that's what's going to require an increase in the resourcing beyond what was allocated to the parent organization, the former Air Force Space Command. Uh, and now let me put that in context. The 2021 defense budget amounts to $705.4 billion. The Space Force has allocated $15.4 billion or just over 2%. So you, I think you get what I mean. I mean, if we're going to be serious about this, we have to build the satellites that can be launched, that can protect and defend our own space architecture, as well as if necessary, go offensive uh, to prevent an adversary for, from taking over our, uh, our, our space capabilities. Now the second challenge, uh, I've got four of them to address. The second one is directly related to the first. And it's a little bit in the weeds, but I think it's important to understand. The money over which the Department of the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force now um, has, a, has organizational authority over both the Air Force and the Space Force. It has no control over some of the money in its budget and it needs to get rid of that set of accounts uh, in order to become transparent in what's actually allocated uh, to Air and Space Forces. This money is called pass-through it amounts to 20% of the Department of the Air Force budget. That's about $40 billion. And neither the Air Force nor the Space Force control it. <clears throat> so if these agencies uh, that are part of the intelligence community are not going to be part of the new Space Force, then that pass-through money has got to be removed uh, to illustrate the actual amount of budget authority that the Space Force is getting. The third challenge confronting the Space Force is one of gaining sufficient personnel. Um, the new service was created by renaming the Air Force Space Command the U.S. Space Force. And that was an appropriate move because the vast majority of the DOD's, the Department of Defense's uh, expertise in space was resident in the Air Force Space Command. But there are very important elements in the other services. Uh, and to capitalize on all of these in a unified, non-duplicative fashion uh, requires that all of these need to be put together. The other point I would remind you, and this is a point of confusion, 
But the Department of Defense also reestablished the U.S. Space Command, separate and distinct from the Space Force, as um, the Unified Combatant Command as well. So personnel need to be authorized uh, to meet the needs of both the Space Force, the Space Command, and the individual service uh, components. And then finally, the fourth challenge is the consolidation of the nation's fragmented multitude of space organizations into the Space Force. Uh, according to the former vice president, uh, who is the head of the U.S. Space Council, the entire point of establishing the Space Force was to align, streamline, and focus efforts to boost space mission effect and efficiency. But that's yet to occur um, with the Air Force assets being the only entities forming the Space Force. Um, back in 2016, the Government Accounting Office noted that there are some 60 stakeholder organizations that all have a role in national security of space. And their conclusion is just simply too many cooks that are spoiling the broth. Um, so uh, spreading the national security space program so thinly has uh, resulted in uh, what the vice president has said was quote, a glaring lack of leadership and accountability that undermines our combatant commanders and puts our warfighters at risk, unquote. So now's the time to set the Space Force up, to, up for success by providing um, the human, the budget, and the organizational resources that they need uh, to allow the Space Force uh, to build America's critical military space capability and capacity. So I'll stop there, and I hope that gives you just a, a, a snapshot of what's involved and why we stood up a new military department to handle uh, military operations in space. That is helpful. And something that you touched on that I think will be very important for our audience to understand. And I, Wendy, I know you'll be able to speak to this as well, but uh, maybe General Datula, before um, leaving this point, you discussed how truly every day the considerations around space are for all of us. They have everyday implications, they impact our everyday technology, and we can sometimes take for granted. Um, just how much that impacts our day-to-day. -day. Uh, how equipped are we at this time? Where are our vulnerabilities um, that we really should be taking into consideration while this new military architecture gets implemented? Um, well, <laughs> part of the reason that we went back and stood up a Space Force is because uh, until the Chinese really demonstrated their capability to offensively take out uh, space-based assets. And that, that first real demonstration occurred in 2007, um, where they took a missile and shot it from the Chinese mainland and took out one of their own old weather satellites. Um, people believe that space was a sanctuary. And there were a lot of people that believed that there were treaties that outlawed the use of weapons in space. Well, guess what? That's not true. Uh, there's a treaty that outlaws the use of weapons of mass destruction in space, but that's different than weapons in space writ large. And so the fact of the matter is what we thought was a sanctuary um, is no longer a sanctuary and that these satellites that uh, frankly weren't built with defensive architectures 
um, are very vulnerable to being uh, affected. I mean, you, we, in our pre-discussion, we talked a little bit about what happened with the cyber attack to take out the uh, major pipeline on the East Coast. Uh, now imagine if um, those satellites that are responsible for the timing signal that the entire United States banking, not United States, international banking system uh, relies upon to conduct transactions or that your credit card machine at your uh, gas station, if it has gas, allows you to pump into your vehicles, all got terminated. Uh, so these are, these are issues that don't just affect the military, but affect not just every person in the United States, but virtually uh, people in every country around the world. So that's how important this is. And Captain Lawrence, that leads me to my next question. Who are the current players in space right now? And to General Deptula's point, how do international relationship relations during an era of strategic and great power competition um, impact our cooperation in space? Well, let me also thank you for the opportunity to be with you all today. You know, I think ideally we do want to view space as a a sanctuary as a place where international cooperation prevails. Certainly the International Space Station is a prime example of that. Flip side of the coin, we can't be naive. You know, we can't assume that everybody's gonna have a peaceful intent for how they operate in space. And I think still success in space uh, is viewed by countries as a significant feather in their cap, so to speak as a source of great pride. Case in point, China just landed a rover on Mars successfully based on their reports. Not many countries have been able to do that. So that is a significant achievement on their part. But China's not alone in their space aspiration. India is another up and coming country. Uh, they're developing rockets, they've got satellites, even small countries like United Arab Emirates are interested in space. They too just launched a rover towards Mars last year. And um, you know that landing hopefully will be coming up in the next uh, month or so. So a lot of people wanna operate in space because they see that as the next logical progression as they build themselves as a, a country and show that they're going to be a major player. So yes, ideally we would like to work with them but I don't think we can assume that they're all going to have the same intent as NASA typically has, which is we're gonna focus on peaceful uses of space. We're gonna to put together projects that are for the betterment of humankind. We're gonna push the boundaries of our technology, but we're gonna use the technology in a way that benefits everybody back down here on earth. Again, I think it would be naive to think that everybody's gonna have that as their driving purpose. Peter, would love to get you involved here. Uh, as we're seeing more countries get involved in space to showcase their capabilities, do you think this also has an impact on the private sector and how we're seeing much more um, commercialization and around space and space technology? Yeah, I think that's one of the fascinating things is so far the discussion here has been very geopolitical and about the nation states. And yet, you know, you've got Virgin Galactic, you've got Elon Musk, you've got a lot of 
entities trying to be very, you know, incorporated into space. You get a lot of talk about, you know, what can we do in space from an economic standpoint? Will it be mining of asteroids? Will it be, you know, zero G, you know, manufacturing? How do you find it working with the private side of this? How do they fit into the whole geopolitical aspect? And, you know, are you encouraged about areas where you can see real development from a commercialized side or is that kind of way off in the future? Is that for, would you like me to address that, Peter? Yeah, I think that would be great. Well, NASA has evolved, um, but if you go back and look at the history of NASA, NASA was never about building each and every one of their spacecraft. They have always worked with companies and corporations outside of them to build their rockets, to build their major satellites. So that aspect is firmly in place. But what is a significant change now is the mindset at NASA that we're gonna assume a slightly different role. Our role is to foster commercialization of low earth orbit, to help these commercial entities like SpaceX, like a Sierra Nevada, like a Northrop Grumman succeed. And so we're going to solicit a request for services. And that's exactly what SpaceX has been doing with their cargo uh, Dragon spacecraft, now with Crew Dragon. In essence, astronauts uh, go to SpaceX and they rent their spacecraft and it takes them up to the International Space Station, brings them back to Earth after their mission is complete. So that's the mindset at NASA now is how can we help these commercial companies succeed and truly turn at least low Earth orbit into a viable commercial marketplace for them. With respect to manufacturing in space, there's a significant amount of work being done on board the International Space Station. But first things first, you've got to go see whether the science works in a microgravity environment. You basically have got to go prove the physics. There were doubts about whether or not you could do 3D printing in space without gravity being the dominant force. We're seeing that, yes, you can in fact do that 3D printing in space because the attraction between the layers of molecules is sufficient. Uh, there's manufacturing right now of fiber optic cables, and that's proving to be um, better than what you could do down here on Earth. But what's still unknown is whether or not you can prove the business case. So we're not at that point yet, but I think they're very promising signs. Yeah, thanks. That's very interesting because it does feel like that's one of the waves of the future in terms of you know where we're looking. There's you know, ETFs that are attracted to that. So it's something I'm sure we'll be coming back with more questions over time as it develops. Can I have a follow-on question to that? Uh, can you be specific about uh, what areas you think will be most likely commercialized in the coming decades, whether that's zero gravity manufacturing, minor efforts, or um, maybe something else? My name asteroids, I think, is still pretty far off. Uh, you have, to, although that said, we're proving some enabling technologies. Uh, Asteroid Bennu has been in the news recently because the OSIRIS-REx mission was able to successfully uh, navigate to it and, and fly in close formation and then retrieve samples. And so if you're going to mine asteroids, you've got to have the ability to fly through it, do that close proximity operations, eventually land on it, be stable. But the whole infrastructure of actually getting the ore out, are you going to process it there on the asteroid or are you going to try and bring it all back? Again, that remains to be seen. What's the business case for that? 
I think likely you're going to see some some degree of manufacturing in space for certain items. And Axiom Space Company is a great example. They're going to try and do a commercial space station. You've got SpaceX and hopefully soon Boeing that will show the ability to get things to and from a space station reliably. So that's just another enabling infrastructure, the to and from part. And you've got to drive down the cost of that. You've got to continue to do that. And then you've got to prove that you can set up that manufacturing in space to a degree that it's going to drive a profit for you. But I to say, I think it will probably be some degree of manufacturing in space that leads the way. And that's discounting the push for uh, space tourism. That's probably going to be the first moneymaker, reliable moneymaker for people is flying, paying passengers at least into a suborbital flight, if not, you know, a short duration mission of a day or two. Yeah, let me jump in here, Rachel. Um, uh, Wendy talked about some very important uh, commercial aspects. Uh, again, what, what is incredible in the, in the set of military operations is that commercial entrepreneurs are now getting into and providing capabilities for Earth observation that just five years ago were top secret, special compartmented information. And now all you need is access to the internet and the credit card. And it's not only for just photography, it's also for radio frequency identification and location. So, you know, uh, again, these used to be extraordinarily classified areas. Now the market's opening. So remote imaging is becoming uh, an enormously commercially profitable uh, uh, arena. And by the way, not just for military use, but for civilian use. There are many countries out there now that are extraordinarily interested in being able to monitor their uh, economic exclusion zones to detect uh, violations of uh, fishing rights uh, and to be able to cue enforcement vessels to be able to go out and intercept uh, mainly the Chinese who are violating other countries' economic exclusion zones. But I just offer that as well. I mean, it's just a proliferation of, of capabilities and pretty soon um, there are going to be, there are civilian companies out there that are, are planning architectures, uh, constellations that will be able to revisit virtually every centimeter on the face of the earth uh, at multiple times per second. Uh, that changes the game in terms of uh, prediction of, of weather, crops, uh, lines of communication and so on and so forth. So just something else to consider. In general, to that point, no longer do you need a huge satellite to accomplish that earth observation capability. Thanks to the miniaturization of components and advancement of technology, you can do a lot of that with a much smaller satellite on the order of you know, multiple units of a, a CubeSat, what's called a CubeSat. So, Lots of people now can get into that area because access, the barriers to access, those are dropping. Right, and that reduces cost. Yes. Uh, you know, I was a planner during the Desert Storm Air Campaign uh, and I would have given a year's pay to have what everyone has access to today with Google Earth. 
Yeah. Um, I, it just, it's just incredible. Um, I was turning using imagery that was six months to two years old uh, because the architecture wasn't rapid enough to get us timely information. Same thing 10 years later in opera, the opening stages of uh, enduring freedom uh, in, in Afghanistan. Now we're, we're getting a little better today, but quite frankly, it's commercial industry that's pushing the Department of Defense. One quick question, just following up on some of that, particularly if you, uh, Captain Lawrence, uh, is Mars, is it just kind of cool to be going to Mars or is that like a real step forward? Is that change the nature of this and going beyond Mars or is that really just something people just want to do so they can be the first to have done it? Oh, well, I think there's a definite cool factor with going to Mars. I mean, kids all often ask me, would you like to go to Mars? And I, without a hesitation, say, absolutely, because I'd like to see it with my own eyes. And then there's some bragging rights for getting that first boot print. But to me, it's just part of our innate need to explore and to push our boundaries. There are some very important questions that we can answer by going to Mars. Why did the water on Mars disappear? Why did the atmosphere on Mars get stripped away? And did that lead to the disappearance of the water or are there are other factors? But if you can understand that and then you take that knowledge and you bring it back to your own pl planet and you apply it here on earth. Enabling technologies, you know, every time you push the boundaries of what you can do and in this area, it's gonna be uh, life support systems, I think in particular, you can bring that technology back to earth and utilize it across the globe. Uh, some of the, what we've learned with life support system technologies on board the International Space Station is used in some of the um, more challenging areas across the world where access to water is limited. They need the water recycling, but they need it on a very cost-effective scale. So every time you do something that's hard, you ask these hard questions, you get a group of really talented people together and let them go solve that problem. Invariably, the answers and what's developed to solve that problem, other smart people on the periphery look at that and say, I can use that to deal with this problem that I've been working on for the past many years. So I think the push to explore and to do what's hard and that's landing on Mars, in particular landing humans on Mars and supporting them on that planet ultimately pays huge dividends for us back here on planet Earth. Thanks, that's very interesting. That point actually uh, is a good segue into one of the questions from the audience. Uh, Captain Lawrence, is there an ESG element to our activities in space? It seems like there's certainly potential for it, but um, anything that you see at the forefront right now? And by that, you mean in, in terms of environmental? Yes, considerations. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> the earliest human space flights, at least if, uh, when you look at the NASA flights, astronauts have taken cameras up because we wanted the ability to capture what we saw. And so now you've got 50 years plus, 60 years now of photography of our planet. And for many people, that is an incredibly valuable time series that they can use to monitor changes on this planet. And so, yes, that plays into what's going on with climate change. Are there areas of the earth where we know there's significant deforestation going on? Can we monitor that year after year and then work with those uh, particular countries to help them deal with this issue? But 
low earth orbit platforms, and we go back to the commercial earth observation photographies, really are giving us, you know, a day by day snapshot of changes that are going on in this planet in a unique way to monitor some of those changes because of the ability to repeatedly go back over that particular area. So yes, that is always in mind. Again, doing this documentation, putting sensors up on board the International Space Station to directly observe what's going on in our planet in hopes of learning enough that we can take strides to prevent the bad things, that we can be proactive and take some steps that continue to protect our planet and, and protect our life on it. So yes, I'd say, at least for NASA as a civilian agency, that has always been an important mission. General Dutula, another question uh, that is actually very um, pertinent to your point about how quickly technology is advancing in space with all these different players, whether it be the international community, uh, private enterprise, US military. As technology advances very, very rapidly, certainly there's going to be a national security consideration on how to protect intellectual property or these technologies from maybe falling into adversarial hands. Uh, where do you see policy at this time around that consideration and concern? Well, it's huge. Um, I, let me give you a very short story um, that is not necessarily um, space related, but it certainly gets to the policy issue in the context of um, uh, some of the concerns, particularly surrounding cyber operations. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, during one of the Air Force conferences, uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force put up a picture of a front aspect view, a head-on view of the uh, stealth fighter, the F-35. Now, the problem was, and what he laid out for the audience is only half of that front aspect view was an F-35. The other half was a Chinese J-31. But you wouldn't have thought that because it looks like an F-35. Look, all of that was stolen by the Chinese uh, by infiltration of the some of the major contractors and they copy the aircraft. Well, that's what's going on. I mean, there, there are other countries out there, um, not just China, but particularly China, because they're such a big economic player, uh, that believes that stealing IP is part of competition. Now, culturally, we don't think that's the case, but that's why uh, you've got to understand some of these issues from a cultural perspective. Um, and we need to put in place greater protections because uh, the, the, they view uh, IP very differently than we do. Um, if they can steal the IP from us, to them, it's not a reflection on their ethos. It's a reflection on our inability to protect our vital information. So we ought to take a lesson from that. Um, uh, uh, across the board. So this isn't something that, you know, is focused only on space, but it's certainly something that highlights the importance of protecting th 
those communications nodes that we are so vitally, not vitally, we're completely dependent upon. Because remember, we're th these are remote systems that we are working with. And we need to protect and assure the robust uh, connectivity between what's in space and folks here down on the surface of the earth to be able to use that information. So I hope that helps. Yeah, and General Tatula, kind of following up on that, you know, we spend a lot of time when we're looking at the, both the geopolitical risk domestic, you know, here on planet Earth, I guess for lack of a better description, and we look at the cyber and, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about what's Iran doing. We spend a bunch of time on what's Russia doing, a lot, you know, from time to time on what North Korea is up to. Are ultimately those same kind of, you know, problem countries going to be problem countries in space? Or are they already problem countries? And should we be starting to put into our calculus that if anything is going to escalate with any of those countries, we should assume space to be part of the battlefront? And then finally, slightly different, same ideas. I think at Academy, we've been talking about how the US has really switched to trying to work with other countries and things like that. NATO comes up in a lot of our discussions. And I don't think we've really heard anything about Europe or what our allies in Europe really are doing in space and how we fit in with them. So kind of filling in maybe the bit of the blanks. It feels like it's just clear that us and China are kind of, you know, frictional across the globe, but where does this translate from earth to space? Who's there? What are they doing? And how are our allies kind of fitting in? No, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, set of questions, Peter. I think you had three of them, but I'm a fighter pilot, so you know, I, I'm gonna have to probably ask you to, to um, you know, uh, uh, remind me again. What, but, but the first one with respect to Iran, North Korea, uh, yeah, you bet there are a challenge because you know, what we've seen over the last 20, 30 years is the proliferation uh, and globalization of technology and information. And so there, I think the audience is probably pretty familiar with some of the um, <clears throat> rocket launches out of North Korea. Uh, you know, we can spend a long time just on, that, on North Korea alone. Um, but because they're so uncertain about what they might do, that was one of the principal, and still remains one of the principal concerns. You get a country like North Korea that's unpredictable, uh, a, <laughs> that starts to develop nukes and now has capable missiles that can put these weapons in orbit. And by the way, it's not just to, uh, say, attack the West Coast of the United States. But, um, you know, there's a phenomenon <clears throat> called electromagnetic pulse generation that if one of these nukes is uh, uh, detonated, not on U.S. territory, but over U.S. territory, um, it would, could significantly affect uh, multiple elements, but uh, principally electronic power generation and fry your computer. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but... Um, this thing I'm talking on is like glued to my hip 24-7-365. And, um, you know, I, I, I go through seizures if I, I don't have access to it. Um, but in all seriousness, we, we're talking about the ability to significantly disrupt operations without sort of tradition, without that traditional warfare, mono e mono kind of <clears throat> surface conflict. So... North Korea is a player in that regard. Iran is extraordinarily important. And this is why some of us have a lot of concerns about 
um, re-engaging on JPCOA uh, or the nuke agreement um, without addressing the research and development the Iranians are putting into um, uh, space launch capabilities. So you bet those other nations, it's not just China, it's the proliferation of these technologies uh, to countries like um, uh, Iran and uh, North Korea. Now, with respect to Europe, uh, the Euros European Space Agency is, is very, very involved. Uh, <clears throat> perhaps Captain Lawrence can give us a better appreciation for you know, where they stand in relationship to uh, <clears throat> US companies, but they're a consortium. They take a consortium approach uh, that tends to leverage some investments on smaller company, countries and companies' um, uh, behalf. But uh, Europe is very engaged in uh, the, and we have cooperative partnerships with them as well. Um, so I think you've identified some really important uh, issues and remind me if I've missed anything. I think you kind of answered it. The final question had really been, should we assume that military conflict will have that real risk of bypassing into space if we see it in the future? Yes, absolutely. I mean, just like any other domain, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If conflict breaks out inside the atmosphere, it will be occurring uh, externally as well. Matter of fact, that probably will be a precursor um, to any military operations inside the atmosphere is uh, an adversary trying to deny um, our critical command control communications, um, observation, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, all these elements now, we have extraordinary reliance on um, space-based systems. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Captain Lawrence, before we move on, uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity if, if you had anything to add to the uh, geopolitical and international element. You know, I, um, I've had a different experience. And so the uh, optimistic part of me wants to hold on to the fact that uh, space can be a place of great international cooperation. Um, case in point, I got to participate in the Shuttle Mir program, still on active duty in the Navy. In fact, about uh, almost close to half of the astronauts who were in the Shuttle Mir program were active duty military, uh, some ending up in space with cosmonauts who were still active duty Air Force who had stood alert against one another. So for me, Shuttle Mir program, International Space Station have shown that we do have the ability when we want to, to take those swords and, and beat them into plowshares that we can operate peacefully. I would like to see that continue in the future. We have um, European Space Agency is a great example. NASA has a very strong partnership with them. They're in the International Space Station program. They're gonna be part of Artemis and the Gateway Space Station around the moon. They've got great companies over there that build great hardware. I've taken some of that hardware to space. I've lived in some of that hardware. So yes, those companies are just as capable. That said, I go back to what I say previously is I think we are naive to think that every country is gonna have the same intentions that we do in space, that, that they're always gonna want to operate peacefully. 
they're going to make decisions that are in their best interests. You know, we do it in the United States as well. But I do think that space has shown us that we do have the ability when we want to, to work quite well. Even former adversaries like the United States and Soviet Union can work quite well together and form a long lasting partnership. So I would say, let's not completely give up hope. I appreciate allowing, it's a, a daunting conversation, quite frankly. Um, so it, it's nice to leave it on a, a more positive note. And that being said, uh, Peter, I want to give you the final word. Uh, given the conversation, where does opportunity exist? What should our clients and partners be considering um, when we're in the 21st century space race? Yeah, I think this is just going to be an ongoing you know, opportunity by the sounds of it, right? I, I do enjoy watching the public-private, you know, embrace, I think, you know, trying to figure out which of these technologies are going to work and become commercially viable will create huge opportunities, right? It's, you know, you've looked at some of the companies that today are the juggernauts that were very small companies 20 years ago, and probably the seeds of some of those huge growth opportunities are out there, and it's for corporations to identify who to work with and for investors to figure it out. So, I think it's going to be really exciting to watch. And at the same time, I think just like cyber now is kind of constantly at the back of our you know, minds wondering about this, I think we're going to have to make sure we're thinking about and addressing properly the risks that are up there. Um, you know, certainly the fact that I can't drive anywhere without my GPS is a little bit concerning, um, given some of what General Dupula had to say. So um, you know, I think we'll stick to the optimistic side and that we'll do the right things to patrol space and make sure it can work. But it feels like we're all supposed to be spending more and more time identifying really what are the success stories going to be and who are these companies that in 20 years ago, everyone's going to say amazing things about that are rare or undiscovered today. Yeah, well said, Peter. And, you know, we can always do a map reading class. You have a lot of great orienteers and on the academy team. So we'll get you squared. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> that being said, we are at the end of uh, our conversation today. We're so grateful for everyone that joined. We hope you learned something. We look forward to following up on this discussion. As, uh, as Peter said, it is not going away. If you have any follow-on questions, please feel free to reach out to either your Academy Relationship Manager or Coverage Person or at info at academysecurities.com. And we look forward to answering your questions and uh, hosting more conversations like this. Thank you again. <laughs>